Hello, I'm Genevieve Costigan, and thank you for joining us for our fourth season of Talking Teaching. Things don't change if we don't change. We have to change not just the decisions we make, but change our the lens through which we are understanding all of these contemporary challenges. In this episode, we asked the University of Melbourne's Larissa McLean-Davies, an Associate Professor in Languages and Literacies Education at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, to host a panel discussion on the importance of reading in our lives and how to make the teaching of English more inclusive, particularly in terms of decolonising the curriculum. Joining Larissa in this discussion is Associate Professor Sandra Phillips, who is a member of the Waka Waka and Goring Goring Nations of Queensland. She is the Associate Dean Indigenous Engagement in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. Joining Sandra is Sari Renkin, who has worked extensively in the philanthropic sector and who chairs the Stella Prize, the major literary award celebrating women's writing. And Amy Brown, who is a teacher and writer, having published four children's novels and three poetry collections. So over to you, Larissa. Thanks so much, Genevieve, and thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Talking Teaching. Today, we're talking about literature. Can you remember the books you studied at school? What impact, I wonder, have these stories, this literature had on your life beyond the walls of the secondary classroom? Often when we talk about reading, we think mainly about reading acquisition, reading and the development of literacy in young children. And while that's very, very important, today we're taking a different path. We're expanding the reading conversation. We're interested in asking what kind of reading publics are we producing in Australia? And so I'm really fortunate to be joined by our three panellists to discuss these questions and raise these issues. So we're going to begin with just asking what is the importance of literature to them? Sandra, I'm going to go to you first. So I was born in 1968. So prior to that, various um, jurisdictions had us being counted as part of the flora and fauna, us being Aboriginal peoples in my case, and also um, the other Indigenous group of Australia, Torres Strait Islanders. So in that context, um, it's quite surprising that we had several generations of literacy in English written language in our family. So our grandmother could read uh, in English. Our mother was an avid reader of largely historical um, romances that she borrowed every week from the council library and we all would trot faithfully down on a Friday afternoon to the council library. So we were a little crew of um, very big reading habits and uh, there wasn't a great deal of diversity in the choices we made, but we were nonetheless avid readers. In our childhood, it was the days of um, door-to-door salespeople. And um, our mother bought a set of books from a door-to-door salesperson. One of the books in the set was a book of antonyms and synonyms. So mother really wanted us to master if you like, the English language. Um, And that antonyms and synonyms book 
is what I think of when I'm asked to refer to a book from my childhood that made a big impact on me. Amy, in terms of you as a writer, have you felt that um, the reading and writing nexus for you has been important? So what you've read read has really influenced the way you've been thinking about being a writer? Certainly, yeah. Um, And at the moment, given that I'm spending all my time writing at the moment when I'm not caring for my son and doing other things, um, I think my reading's a lot more tactical and sort of prescriptive at the moment. My own prescription, I suppose, I'm thinking very carefully about what um, what I need and reading, um, setting my own sort of reading list, I suppose, to try and teach myself what I would like to write. So it's it's a lot more conscious than it has been in the past. But I think it's there's always that nexus, as you as you put it, between what you're reading and what you're writing, and and I'm also conscious of that when I'm teaching texts to, to high school students as well when I'm setting texts to, for them to study and tasks for them to write in response to the text that it's a, a privilege and a power to do that because you are shaping the way that they think about um, well everything really. So And Sari, um, tell us about your literary connection. I think like the other two, um, Sandra and Amy, I come from a family that has placed a high value on reading and writing and storytelling. I have always had a huge love for this country and I've always been interested in how we define ourselves, how I define myself as an Australian. What are my beliefs? Where do I fit? And what stories shape our beliefs and cultural norms that then actually play into our politics, into the way that we create social solutions, in the way that we engage with different communities or not. So I I feel reading has really helped me enter different worlds, understand different people. So I do think reading is a form of activism, but I I feel it's a way of being actively engaged. To build on that then, we've been talking about the teaching, I guess, of English in this country, and we know that historically the teaching of English was primarily intended for colonisation and for colonial purposes. It was to bring students as British subjects closer to the empire. And so we we still have and um, value, and we've all uh, discussed here our, our valuing of uh, reading and, and speaking in English and, and reading texts, but I'm interested in us thinking about now what does this need to look like in terms of decolonising the curriculum, in terms of thinking about the kind of reading practices that we might need to be reshaping. Sandra, do you think it's possible to decolonise the English curriculum? Well, if we start with the reflection shared by Bridget Magna from her research, that from 1900 to the Second World War, 25% of the books exported from Great Britain came to Australia. We have a history that through the coloniality ensured that the dominant society was infused with British colonial concepts, including, as you have framed it here today, the English curriculum that we study. Post-Second World War, um, we see a revolution. We see Australian society going, who are we? Who are we fighting for? What are we fighting for when we enter global theatres of war? Um, what stories are important to us? There's an increase in migration from um, non-English speaking backgrounds. Before that, we had the White Australia policy, of course, and it didn't officially end until the 1970s. 
So we had a diversifying population and community. We therefore had a diversifying uh, collective of stories and languages and vocabularies and vernaculars and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the Australian publishing industry saw opportunity in this, um, spearheaded by um, women like um, Hilary McPhee um, and her collaborator um, in the 1960s, 70s, saying there are new voices to be had here. So their work was phenomenal and foundational to shifting it up a little bit, to changing that, uh, that proportion of books that we read as coming from here rather than from Great Britain. 1964, um, we acknowledge the poetry collection We Are Going, written by the late Kath Walker, who changed her name to Ujiri Nunakal, as the first book published by an Indigenous writer, by an Aboriginal writer. Beyond that, though, the more numerous works authored by Indigenous peoples started coming through in the 1980s and 1990s. So, and then even more now, like 2020 saw um, one uh, Indigenous writer, the Wiradjuri woman, Tara June Winch, take out the Miles Franklin Award, the Prime Minister's Literary um, Award for Fiction, three categories of the New South Wales Premier's Award. Um, before that, of course, um, Alex, Alexis Wright won the Stella Prize for her um, collective memoir, Tracker. Uh, 2019, Melissa Lukashenko won the Miles Franklin Award. So we're now in a really incredible purple patch of Indigenous writers winning critical awards. But to return to your question of can we decolonise, well, we already have from Great Britain um, and I think we can do even more to decolonise the traces of a dominance that still exists. Certainly in, in my experience of it as an English teacher and working with curriculum, some of that stickiness of colonisation <laughs> remains strong in the curriculum. Just thinking about this issue of decolonising, Amy, and hearing that, um, you know, fantastic account of, of the last decades in terms of Indigenous publishing, what's, what are your reflections on that and this issue of decolonising the English curriculum? Uh, lots of thoughts. Um, I think the, the first that comes to mind is, um, takes me back to an, a job interview I had actually um, for the school that I was, I was at most recently where they asked, um, if a student asked you, why are we studying Shakespeare? What would you say to them? And I said, I, I, well, firstly, I congratulate them on an excellent question. And then we would talk about um, where that question had come from and the ways in which you can study a text that you might deem anachronistic or unnecessary or irrelevant to your particular social or ge ge geographical context and so I think it's the way that you approach a text as much as the text that you're studying that has the power to decolonize the curriculum but that argument can also be used a bit cynically to you know to continue to make the same mistakes or for you know rest upon the same kind of patterns that have been so damaging in, in the curriculum sort of historically. So I think that while you must interrogate colonial canonical texts um, in ways that fit the, the context in which you're studying them, um, you should also be adding more into the mix. Sari, in your work with the Stella Prize, particularly in the schools program, what's been your experience? 
what we're um, starting to really ask ourselves as an organisation is this question about what is our relationship as a white feminist organisation largely. It started, it's not the intention to be that, but that's where it started. It was founded by a, a group of fabulous white feminists, writers, booksellers, publishers, um, and has evolved now to a place of really asking, well, what's our relationship to First Nations writers and storytellers, and particularly women and non-binary First Nations writers and storytellers. What's our history as a literary organisation and how do we start to be more inclusive and and open up discussions about what it might look like in the future, um, how it might change to be, be more open to different conversations about what is a prize, what is best literature, um, how do we unsettle this notion of, of being a part of um, colonial literature in Australia? You know, how do we as the settlers, if you like, unsettle some of that? And it's there's no answers. There's no clear answers, but it does take this process of asking the question but then venturing forth and including more diverse voices and particularly First Nations writers and storytellers initially to help us work through that. And so I think in our schools program, that's one of the questions we're asking too, is how can you with authority and legitimacy unsettle um, English and, and our, you know, because that's the context for our school program um, within the, the school educational platform and who's got the right to do it? And so this content expertise, this context expertise all becomes uh, very relevant and do English teachers all need to be trained or can they be or do we need partners? You know, is there, particularly around the unsettling, do we need to, to have relationships as schools with non-Indigenous, and sorry, with Indigenous people, teachers or elders or storytellers? And I'm asking this, the, all these things really as questions on this, in this particular conversation because I don't have clear answers, actually. Maybe it's a bit of everything. But that's where we've started to move and and it's mm-hmm. rippling right through our whole organization because we're actually also asking how we do we unsettle our own governance we're an all-white board of an organization that's promoting um you know an equitable culture for all women writers and non-binary writers in this country but we're an all-female board so what does that say about our story and i think what you're you're really um bringing to the fore seri is the the importance of reflecting and and deeply committing to action in terms of those kind of uh, often challenging questions for organisations. And when I guess we talk about unsettling the secondary curriculum, then what you're suggesting is it's got to be more than just uh, selecting certain kinds of texts. Sandra, in the the work that um, I've been fortunate to be doing with you, um, I've I've been learning about this, um, the notion of the way you've been talking about standpoint and the work you've done with some of your pre-service teachers. So as we turn our attention to teachers now, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing just some of that work. So I've um, taught um, pre-service teachers at two universities in Queensland. I no longer am in the classroom of higher ed. I'm now in a leadership role. So just to um, return to some of the concepts that were fundamental in that um, pre-service teacher education at those two universities in curriculum that I led are those issues of 
the the student teacher, the student understanding uh, that standpoint is relevant to their interpretation of literature. Okay, so that we're not looking for the master key in how to understand the work. We're actually looking for uh, deeper critical thinking around um, their engagement as a student reader, as a future teacher um, reader and setter of uh, curriculum and assessment um, within obviously very limited and clear constraints. Getting criticality through that is a very complex thing. So that that concept of standpoint is about recognising that your own subjectivity will influence the way that you understand a text. Two things there, I think, Larissa, is um, the significance of standpoint and how we get uh, students and student teachers and teachers and how we support them in understanding what that is and how it applies in the classroom. Secondly, how to manage space where if we're going to say that's important, we therefore create a much more collaborative, co-creative, dynamic learning and teaching space. So we need to, you know, support teachers and students to be able to be in that space. So the collaborative dynamic environment, actually training for that um, and then assessing from it. And that uh, in a in a high stakes neoliberal environment that we we have been in for some time, uh, it's where assessment drives everything. Sandra, that is a particular challenge for us. Uh, and and Amy, what do you see would need to shift or change so that this kind of conversation, to what extent I should say, do you feel that our system would accommodate this kind of approach pedagogy that Sandra's suggesting and that Sari's suggesting through this you know the work with the Stella Prize. One way of doing one way of um, trying to distract from or take the sting out of assessment and make um, is the purpose of the English classroom broader and, and is to is pedagogically in every you know in every um, interaction in the classroom and in the language you use to try and yes we have we have this at the end of the year that is, you know, impending and um, it's important to you, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And what you are going to remember from your years of studying English is not in the end going to be the exam. I hope it's going to be the discussions you've had and the ideas that you've had surrounding the texts that you've studied and hopefully the things you've read willingly during that year as well alongside the texts that you've studied. And choosing, having choice, I think student choice is immensely important of student voice as well. I guess what part of the way of addressing some of the concerns regarding the suitability or practicality of the text, one of the main ones was um, do we are we equipped to teach it? Do our students have sufficient con- contextual understanding? Um, and we will we'll begin to, to draw this to a close now. So I'm wondering about um, how we, we think about the importance of student engagement in texts and what we might think are the, the benefits of Uh, I guess, revealing literature or experiencing literature in the ways that we've been talking about today. Uh, So, Sari, I'll go to you in terms of student engagement. How important is it, do you think, and and what's the work of it? If you cannot engage the students in texts that have some resonate in some way with the way they are experiencing, seeing or want to understand the world, you're not going to have them um, engaged in English at all. And it doesn't matter how good the teacher is, unless you've got an absolutely brilliant teacher who can somehow 
translated into the modern context, they're just not going to be, um, you're not going to get student engagement. I like the idea of um, student-driven selection of text. And I know that um, the evidence that I've, got, I've seen live with that through the Stellar Schools program is that the Stellar Schools actually gets kids to pick a book, read it, and then share their thinking around it to a small group, like a book club that sits in schools outside of the, it, it's a voluntary optional program, but it's incredible how many kids do start to sign up and they're not always the, the students that uh, are the top English students or considered to be the most broad readers. They're often the students who um, are looking to engage with the world and can see it happening through books, but in a way that makes them comfortable, that there's a non-judgment to it, and often in a way that allows them to respond creatively through their own writing practice as well. And just finally then, um, Sandra, your thinking around this issue of student engagement uh, and taking this forward and, and perhaps a new way of thinking about assessment in this context, over to you. Oh, I'll reflect momentarily on student engagement in higher education, the future teachers. So um, for five and a half years, I had set um, texts that students, the student teachers did not know about. So it's those texts were Dark Emu, Heat and Light and Mullumbimby. Um, in respectively, Bruce Pascoe, Ellen Van Neven and Melissa Lukashenko. So my first point is that students don't know what they don't know and it it requires us as the big people to step up and take on the challenges. It doesn't start with the classroom teacher. The big people starts um, in systems that define what the classroom teacher does. Things don't change if we don't change. We have to change not just the decisions we make, but change our the lens through which we are understanding all of these contemporary challenges. Creating the space that students can actually enact their own agency is vital. Uh, using multiple forms of media, even though the text is the core, um, having audio and video and, and other kind of text-based commentary as well to get students to, to think about the text through these other perspectives that, are, that they're exposed to that use different senses. I think getting voices in the room, in the Zoom, in whatever, in the heads of the students is really important. Um, and a diversity of voices that they perhaps have never had the opportunity to witness, listen to, look at, think about before. So all of that kind of creates a richer uh, learning environment as well that from my experience, does lead to student engagement. Thank you, Sandra. And that's a, a great place for us to finish today uh, just around thinking about uh, leadership and what leadership looks like in this space, um, reimagining or imagining and enacting a different kind of English curriculum in Australia in the 21st century and, and really thinking about what it is to be engaged doesn't mean uh, that we are going to be comfortable or, or familiar with something, but really to expand our sense of that. Uh, the question around assessment and how we move towards that and how curriculum change looks or how curriculum looks in this, in this vision is something that we're going to need to continue to have a conversation about. But I thank you very much for joining Talking Teaching today to Sandra Phillips, to Sari Renkin and to Amy Brown. 
And thank you, Larissa, for hosting the panel today. Talking Teaching is produced by Zane Kingy, Carl Smith and myself. See you next time.